Good morning, everyone. Today the Bible reading is coming from Acts chapter 10, 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and, because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. And then from verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived. The whole time I was with you, from the first day I arrived in the province of Asia, you know, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you and that I have taught you publicly and from house to house. For I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that the Holy Spirit teaches, that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my worth my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. For I have not hesitated Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and will not spare the flock. They will distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God 
and to the gospel of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know with these hands of mine, I have supplied all my own needs and those of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Well, jolly well done, is what I want to say. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> let's, let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, what a precious thing is your word, the word of your grace. And thank you that it gives life. We pray that you would give life to us today through it. Help me to be extremely clear. Help us to love you with our minds. And please shape us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so occasionally at the end of a survey, I am asked which full-time job best matches my own, which I find always tricky. Church pastor is something that's never in the drop-down menu. And you know, what do you tick? Teacher, social worker, manager, counselor, administrator, entertainer. I mean, which one? What is a church pastor? And what must they do? I want you to think aloud with the person beside you for a moment. What are the core non-negotiables that you think a church pastor must do to pastor? Go, one minute. Okay, make sure you listen to the other person now if you've been speaking. <laughs> okay, all right, thank you. Now, I'm tempted at this point to pass around the mic because it would be helpful for me to hear from each of you. Um, but I'm not going to do that because Acts, <laughs> Acts 20 gives us the answer. Here we have the Apostles Paul's Pastoring 101 training seminar with a really funny introduction. When our family goes to the swimming pool, one of the games we like to play, maybe you've played this, is biblical characters' entrance into the pool. So the idea is you think of a biblical character and then you take it in turns to act that out as you jump into the pool and everyone else has to guess which character it is. Now, Narelle's favourite go-to Bible character for this game is Eutychus, 
who falls asleep as Paul droned on and on into the night and then fell out of the window. You can just imagine it, can't you? Um, she does a very good impersonation of Eutychus. <laughs> Not that she's ever fallen asleep during my preaching, right? It's a very strange introduction to a chapter which is all about pastoring essentials because what's it saying? Here's what a pastor must do. Kill people by preaching until they die. <laughs> All right, on my bookcase, I have a book on preaching, which is called Saving Eutychus. <laughs> there you go. And uh, oh, somewhere else, there was another book. Haven't got it here, but it's, it's also the companion bit, which is how to listen to a sermon. That's the one for you guys, all right? <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Um, I think what's surprising about this story is not just the humanness of the story that he fell asleep as Paul droned on and on into the night, who hasn't been there, nor even that he died and that he was brought back to life, though that is astounding. What's surprising is that after killing someone and then raising him from the dead, Paul keeps on speaking. Did you pick that up? He keeps speaking until morning. I mean, why would he do that? Did he just like the sound of his own voice? I don't think so. Now, because context, Paul has been revisiting for the last time the churches that he planted. He's been strengthening them. And he knows that he will not see them again. And so he's giving them his final instructions on how to keep going when he's not around. And that is relevant for us, because Paul's not around here, okay? So I take it that what Paul said that night to the elders of Eutychus's church is then spelled out in summary form in what Paul shares with the Ephesian elders on the shores of Miletus. The story of Eutychus, in other words, sets us up to listen and not fall asleep to the content that's to come. Paul showed that his words as Jesus' messenger are powerful to raise the dead to life and we're about to hear from Paul, uh, what we're about to hear from Paul means spiritual life and not death for us. The main command is given in Acts 20 verse 28. Paul charges the Ephesian elders, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. After three years of pastoral ministry, Paul's passing on pastoral responsibility to other people. Now, he speaks to the elders, but he uses, words over, uh, uses the words overseers and shepherds and elders interchangeably. He reminds the elders, the Holy Spirit has made them overseers and their job is to shepherd or to pastor the flock. So the elders are the overseers or shepherds and their job is to pastor. And here the Apostle Paul unpacks the essentials of pastoring by describing what he himself has done and then by charging the elders to do the same. So this is the Apostle Paul's leadership training seminar on pastoring. This is Pastoring 101. This is relevant not just to myself and people in my role, because Paul speaks to this group of elders, not just one whom we pay and call pastor, that's me. What Paul says here is relevant to everyone who shares the shepherding role, whether you're in a, in a growth group or in a 
ministry, kids' church, for example, or a family, as well as it's relevant to any future elders who are here. And indeed, in fact, to every believer to help them know how to best encourage their elders and pray for them. So what must pastoring involve? Essentially, Paul says three, four things. Number one, openly live out the gospel, always teach the gospel, guard the flock, use the word of grace. First, openly live out the gospel, verses 18 to 19. Paul says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. So he begins with his life, how he lived. And that was transparent to everyone who knew him. Everyone who knew him could see that he wasn't in it for himself. He lived, he says, to serve the Lord. And he did it with great humility, not to fulfill a need for recognition. He did it with tears, significant personal cost. He did it with perseverance in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. And all that would have been known to the Ephesian elders. He reminds them he openly lived out the gospel. Secondly, always teach the gospel, verses 20 to 27. Now, this is important. Sometimes we distinguish between one elder who we say is more pastoral and another one who's good at teaching. By pastoral, we mean emotionally intelligent, kind, prayerful, a good listener. But I want to say that's not pastoral, that's just Christian. But here in Acts 20, when Paul fleshes out what pastoring looks like, he refers to teaching people. And he uses six words. Preaching, verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. Teaching, verse 20, I have taught you publicly from house to house. Declaring, verse 21, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Testifying, verse 24, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Proclaiming, verse 27, I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And warning, verse 31, I've never stopped warning each of you night and day. At its heart, pastoring, shepherding, involves teaching and preaching. That is, open, opening the Bible and teaching your way through it. The reason why preaching through a Bible passage is essential to pastoring is because God is the chief shepherd of his people. And he pastors, he shepherds his church by speaking to his sheep and by leading his sheep through them hearing his voice, which happens when the Bible is opened and his words are read and taught and applied. Now that means that the main way I am to pastor God's people is to open up the Bible and my job is to say what it says and to explain it so it's intelligible and I do that so that God can be your pastor and that you can hear his voice spoken into your life and applied to you by the Holy Spirit. That, I want to say, is infinitely more valuable than me opening my mouth with the Bible closed because my thoughts are infinitely less valuable, less insightful and less powerful than are the words of God. Um, it's not unusual for people to say after, after, afterwards, thank you, you, that really spoke to me and I think, well, it didn't come from me. I mean, if I had to think that up, you know, I wouldn't have anything insightful to say to you. 
Uh, it's the raw material and my job is to say what it says. And then God by his spirit takes it and applies it in your life. So expository preaching going through passages which God speaks to, to us is, is key. And Paul says he does it in different contexts, publicly in the marketplace or lecture halls, and house to house, which most likely means in church because churches met in houses. Meaning that for us, teaching will not just happen in our public gathering like this, but also in our growth groups, in our children's and youth programs, uh, when we mentor one-to-one, and then in our private devotions. The heart of Christian ministry and pastoring is opening the word of God with people. That's how you do it. That's how I'm to do it, okay? Now, I wanna say that's not the whole of Christian ministry, but it's the heart of Christian ministry. Now, what do we teach and preach? If we look at how the section begins and ends, we see the parameters of teaching. Verse 20, he says, I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful. And verse 27, I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now, all scripture is helpful, but in the ebb and flow of life, some parts have greater application than others. And I have to be flexible to change a preaching series if another one is more helpful. And we did that last year during lockdown. The other parameter is to teach the whole will of God that God wants of his people drawn from material right across the Bible. You know, last year we preached on Ecclesiastes, Exodus and Ezekiel all the way through. Why would you do that? Because God has given us a very mixed diet in this and we need it all not just the Gospels, not just the New Testament, the whole lot, and we need to realize that we need it. This year, the plan is to preach right through Ruth in February. We wanna finish Acts by the end of March. We wanna start the Gospel of John. We wanna preach right through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and we wanna start the book of Revelation, and the aim is to finish that in the next three years. I need to pastor through God's word. And we need to let God pastor us through his word. That means for church, it's always a good idea to have come having prayed for yourself. Do you do that? God, help me to hear what you want me to say. Please, please do your surgery on my life. Do you ever pray that before you come? That would be good. And hopefully, having read through the passage, beginning to think about it. Okay, for our growth groups, what it means is we will always open the Bible in our growth groups rather than simply reading a Christian book. Because I can tell you, though Christian books can be helpful, this is how God pastors his people. This is where the authority lies. When you open it, this is God speaking directly to you. I will not put up with growth groups that just open Christian books but ignore this. This is the bread and butter, right? Okay. We need to be clear on the pastor's task. Pastors can only properly pastor by leading people to hear God's words and we need to let him pastor us by letting him speak to us, which means coming, listening openly, listening with humble hearts, open ears, engaged minds. To what end? Well, next Paul gives us clarity on what response we're aiming for, verse 21. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So Paul is not primarily looking that people just would be stirred or moved. Though that's good, right? He's not primarily seeking a large growth in numbers. Though that's good. 
What he's looking for always are two responses, repentance and faith. That is the same goal for unbelievers as for believers. Now, for unbelievers, the goal is in teaching is always that they would stop walking in their life away from God, they would turn towards God and come to have faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord. So that as far as sin is concerned, they'll turn from walking down that road of of living our own lives our own way without God, that road that leads to hell, and they would turn to God and turn to eternal life. And that as far as Jesus is concerned, in turning towards God, they turn from trusting in the things that cannot save to place their trust in Jesus who can save. So repentance and faith are the desired response in every unbeliever. But also, that's the desired response in every believer. Because of course, when we walk one way, different parts of us, will want to walk back. Like if I walk this way, one arm goes this way and one arm goes that way, okay? And in our lives, there will always be parts of us desiring to live for Christ and parts of us desiring to swing in the opposite direction. Which is why when we hear the Bible taught, the Spirit, his work is always to help us to repent and to believe. That's what we've got to do. So Paul gives the elders clarity on their response. And then Paul gives clarity on expectations. He says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Now we don't know how he was compelled. Maybe it was a direct audible voice. Maybe it was God's sovereign opening and closing of doors, which happens all the time. However, however it happened, he says, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. He doesn't know about the future except that he'll encounter hardship. Now, in ministry, you can try and mitigate risks, but the reality is that gospel ministry brings hardship. That's just the reality. Um, I'm not complaining here, by the way. I'm very well looked after, I should say. But when we hear that, we can think, surely that's a reason to stop, isn't it? That's a reason to stop teaching about Jesus. That's a reason to step out of pastoral ministry. But for Paul, I want you to see that it's the other way around. I know hardships are facing me, the future is uncertain, but I'm compelled by the Spirit and I cannot stop. I want to say, after spending 28 years now of working in full-time Christian ministry or preparing for it, I'm now at the weird stage of seeing many of my peers move out of pastoral ministry into other good work, working for a Christian organization. And that's happening to more and more people. I can't shake the reality that some of us actually need to stay at the coalface as pastors, because God's church needs pastoring and we just don't have enough, is the truth. And I'm praying that from this church, God would raise up people who would pastor his church full-time in the future. That's my prayer, that from this group it would happen. Despite the cost, that's Paul's attitude, verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And I have to say, it's a wonderful privilege to be able to do it. It's wonderful. So now Paul gives us clarity on the next thing, which is the gospel. Now, most of us will know that the word gospel means good news. 
And we can think, therefore, that that must mean everything in the Bible, right? No, because Paul summarizes the gospel as the gospel of God's grace or God's kindness, his generosity to us in Christ. You can go to a few passages and actually find out what the content of the gospel is. Go somewhere like Romans 1, 1 to 4. You see, the gospel is not something that we get to make up the content of. It's God's gospel, the gospel of God regarding his son, which he then summarizes as Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel, in other words, is all about Jesus. It's about who he is, Jesus, that is the real historical figure, who is Christ, Jesus Christ, he's the promised king who saves. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the risen divine ruler and judge of all, that's who he is. And it's about who he is and then what he's done. What's he done? Mark chapter one, verse 14, he came as our king. What's he done? 1 Corinthians 15, he died for our sins. What's he done? Romans 1 verse four, he rose to rule. What's he done? Romans 2.16, he will return to judge. That's Paul's gospel. And it's very helpful because it's telling me that if I manage to talk to someone about God, but I don't tell them about Jesus, I haven't told them the gospel, okay? And even if I speak about the totally breathtaking, wonderful, critical work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but I actually don't speak about God's Son, guess what, I haven't shared the gospel because the gospel is about God's Son. He came as our king, he died for our sins, he rose to rule, he'll return to judge. Now most of us leave out that last point, but the coming judgment was a feature of Jesus' preaching and of the apostles' proclamation of the gospel, and we ignore it at our peril. And if we do ignore it, then everything else becomes meaningless. Concepts like grace, forgiveness, salvation. If there is no judgment day, these become nothing. And we forget that the news of the coming day of judgment is in fact good news for millions and millions of people around the world whose lives have been decimated through horrendous oppression and sin. They long for the day of judgment. The announcement that there's such a one is great news. But the summary of the gospel is not a harsh message we need to see, it's called the gospel of grace. And that tells us how to speak it, not in bullying overtones, but with grace. Because it's good news for every sinner, be we greedy people or slanderers or people who've sinned sexually, the great news is that God has sent us a king who can take charge of us, who has died for our sins and risen to free us from sin's curse and from the judgment to come. So pastors need to be clear on the gospel. Fifth, be clear on responsibility. Verse 25, he says, now I know that none among you, um, among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again and therefore I declare you today I am innocent of the blood of any of you. Why would he say that? It comes from Ezekiel, that phrase, and of Ezekiel's need to warn people of the danger that's coming. Paul says to the elders, I've always done it. I've never shirked away from the truth in warning you of the wrath to come. In our culture, we have to find a way of warning people, a way of speaking of, the, of judgment 
And I think the way to do it is to speak in such a way that puts yourself in the frame. I'm in serious danger of the wrath of God. I mean, I'm selfish, I'm lustful, I gossip, I'm envious, I get angry. I don't know about you, you're probably different, but I'm in serious trouble. I ignore God. The way I treat him is, is terrible. I, I can't even love my wife and my kids with a selfless heart. Now, usually when we talk about our deficiencies, of course, we then find people saying, well, me, me too. And then you can say, but the wonderful thing is that even though I've let God down so badly, he loves us so much, he offers us a way out and I'd love to tell you about it. In our culture, we have to talk about this. And remember, if you, like me, have missed opportunities and have left this part of the gospel unsaid, Jesus shed his blood for the blood, blood that, of others that we might otherwise be responsible for. He covers us. So there's the second pastoring essential, which was the big one, teach the gospel. Third, guard the flock, I, I speed up. In verse 28, Paul turns from speaking of his own ministry to, to giving specific instructions to the elders, and he says, the Holy Spirit has made you, the bishops, the overseers of his flock, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So I wanna say your church or your growth group or ministry is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. This church isn't mine, it doesn't belong to me belongs to God because he bought it, he purchased it, he owns it, and he entrusts this precious possession to the care of the elders whom he says, shepherd the flock, that's your job. The content of that word comes from Ezekiel 34 and includes seeking out new sheep, that's evangelism, feeding the flock, teaching, and judging between greedy and vulnerable sheep, that's governing. And then he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. I don't know if you've ever seen what a wild dog can do to a sheep. It's not pretty. Dead sheep with their throats ripped out and their blood staining the, the, the wall. It's a frightening, frightening image, but worse still, Verse 30, even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. The real danger, he says, is not the people out there. It's not the radio commentators, it's not the writers in the, in the papers. They're not going to lead people astray. It's the false teacher within who want to separate and draw disciples after them. So beware the teacher who wants to separate or who says everyone else is a Pharisee and they're the real deal. The truth is any one of us could become a savage wolf. And that's why in verse 28 he tells the elders to keep watch over yourselves and over all the church of God. No person's teaching, in other words, should be above question. Every Groups teaching should be open to scrutiny and that responsibility to scrutinize rests on the shoulders of the elders. Now we know from 1 and 2 Timothy that it came true in Ephesus, false teachers such as Hymenaeus and Philetus, real people with real names from their church, they denied key truths and they destroyed some people's faith. And that's why pastoring is essential, and that's why pastoring 
has its essentials. Openly live out the gospel. Always teach the gospel. Guard the flock. And finally, use the word of grace. Paul says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What will Paul leave them with when he goes? Well, he'll leave them with God and the word of God's grace. He can move on from them precisely because the word of grace is powerful because of whose word it is, it's God's, and because it's effective, because it can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Paul modeled the word of grace, whereas Ephesus as a city was obsessed by wealth, verse 33, he says, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold and clothing. In fact, you yourself know that that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and those of my companions. He modeled it, he lived it. In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. God is more interested in those who give than those who get. Key lesson in ministry. Don't do it for what you can get. Be authentically people of grace. So that, brothers and sisters, is what I'm preaching to me, you realize, is what a pastor must do. Paul's laid out his pastoring essentials. Openly live out the gospel. Always teach the gospel. Guard the flock. Use the word of grace. It's not rocket science. But pastoring like that is very powerful. And we see this at the end, and with this I close. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. He was precious to them, you see. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. And what did he leave them with? God and the word of his grace. Father in heaven, thank you that you are powerful and gracious and you have sent Jesus, our Saviour and Lord. And thank you that you have put in the church elders and given them this responsibility. We pray for them. We give thanks for all those who've pastored us well in the past. And we pray for those who are currently doing it and for future pastors that you would raise up, we beg. We pray that you'd do it from this church. Please give encouragement to those who are in the pastoring role. Uh, Keep them walking faithfully and humbly with you. Keep them living out the gospel in their own lives. Keep them being shaped by it themselves. And we pray, may this flock be guarded with the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.